0: Of Malachi. Now, many of you might not know where Malachi is. Don't feel bad if, if that's the case for you. There's really an easy way to find it. If you know where the book of Matthew is, first book in the New Testament, you can turn to Matthew and then just turn back a few pages and you'll get to Malachi. Because Matthew's the first book of the New Testament. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. Uh, we do have white paperback Bibles. If you didn't bring a Bible and you want one, there's a white paperback Bible in one of the chairs in front of you, and Malachi is on page 467 if you're using one of these Bibles. We're starting a new sermon series today on the book of Malachi, the minor minor prophet Malachi. The subtitle here is A Dialogue with God About Spiritual Boredom, and I'll explain to you in a little more detail here in a moment why I named this series that, but... Uh, before we get into the beginning of the text i I just need to kind of lay out some background contextual information for you Uh, again a lot of you probably haven't uh, maybe never heard of malachi probably haven't read malachi in a long time if ever so uh, some of the books in the new testament much more familiar to us malachi not so familiar so um, bear with me here as we just kind of go through some basic background details about this book and this person so the first question i want to talk about is who this guy was Who was Malachi? Um, Sadly, I can't really tell you that much because we don't know much about who Malachi is. We don't have much information in this book. We don't have uh, any listing of who his father was or when or where he was born. But here's one thing we know about Malachi and that he was a prophet, an Old Testament prophet. So what is a prophet? Let's take a few minutes here just to think about that because it's important to understand that before we go through the rest of this book. A prophet is really kind of an unusual person, a very specially called person in the Old Testament. A prophet is a person who receives a call from God, is given by God a special ability to see certain spiritual realities that other people can't see, and that prophet is then called to act as a representative or a spokesperson of God to go to God's people and to call them back to obedience to God's word. That's what a prophet does, a representative of God who goes to God's people and calls them back to obedience to God's word. Often we think of a prophet as someone who can tell the future, and in some cases that's true, but more commonly what the prophet does is just simply call people back to obedience. If you want to look at chapter 4, verse 4, you'll see what I'm talking about here in Malachi, chapter 4, verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him. That's what a prophet does. Calls the people back to obedience to the law of Moses. Now you can imagine when a prophet comes into a situation like this that he's not always received so well. Because here's another common characteristic of prophets. They come into a crisis situation They come to the people of God during a time of spiritual laziness, during a time of immorality and disobedience, and what the prophet does is he rants, and he raves, and he complains, and he threatens. And as a result of that, the prophet is not so often received. And so it's very common for prophets to be rejected, to be mocked, to be ridiculed, because what they do is they say unpopular things to the people of God. And they do it with great conviction because of this calling that God has given to them. So there's a movie that some of you maybe have seen. It's back in the 70s called Network. Not the social network. That came out a few years ago. This is an older movie called Network. And uh, one of the main characters in this movie is a guy named uh, Harold Beale. Howard Beale, excuse me, Howard Beale. And he's called the prophet of the airwaves. And in this movie, Howard Beale is prophesying about the danger of television and the danger of corporate-owned television in particular. And it's really amazing to go see the movie and hear just how prophetic the words of this guy are in terms of our current day and reality TV and the kinds of things we see on TV today. But that's a picture of Howard Beale. Now, we don't have pictures of the Old Testament prophets, (laughs) but as I look at Howard Beale and as I see him going on his ranting and raving in the movie Network, I'm I'm thinking to myself, that's probably about as close to an Old Testament Testament prophet as as we can get. that's, That's the way they looked. They had a calling from God. They're ranting, they're raving, they're complaining, they're challenging They're overcome with the Spirit of God and they're saying things with great passion and deep conviction and that is what was true of Malachi. If Malachi was here as a guest preacher one Sunday, you'd probably never want him to come back. If he were your pastor, you'd ask him to resign. That's what Old Testament prophets do. They come in, they say the unpopular, hard, difficult, challenging thing. And as a result, it was a lonely life for the prophet as he was excluded and rejected by God's people. So that's a little bit about who Malachi is. Well, when did Malachi write? Well, let's think about this in terms of the whole timeline of redemptive history. Here's a, a, a chart that um, <clears throat> gives a, a summary of the Old Testament prophets. Here in the left column, you'll see a number of prophets who were sent by God to rant and rave to the people of God threatening that they would be exiled if they didn't repent and turn back to God and if you know the story you know they didn't repent and so God did exactly what he said he would do through the prophets that is he exiled them so in the year 722 Israel was exiled to Assyria and in the year 586 Judah was exiled to Babylon so these are BC these are years before Christ So all of these prophets here on the left column prophesying before the exile. God did what he said he would do, exiled Judah and Israel. And during the exile, God sent Daniel and Ezekiel and to some degree Jeremiah to prophesy, preach to the people while in exile. Well, there was also a promise that God was going to relieve his people and bring them out of exile and return them to their home in Jerusalem, in Israel, and that happened in the year 538. And so when the people came back to Jerusalem, unfortunately, they were still plagued by disobedience and unrepentance, and so more prophets had to be sent, and so this is the right column, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So Malachi is one of the prophets sent after the exile, after the people of God returned to jerusalem to israel rebuilt the temple rebuilt the wall you know the story in ezra and nehemiah and after all of that malachi comes so he's the very last old testament prophet wrote probably around 450 430 bc Um, between the time of malachi and the coming of john the baptist there is no prophetic word whatsoever so malachi here the very last prophet about 400 years before christ Another question, why? Why was Malachi writing? Well, I've already given you a little bit of a hint about that. Typically, the reason a prophet would come is because of a great spiritual, moral decline, and that was the case here in Malachi's day. Israel is back from exile, they're back in their homeland, but israel is not nearly as glorious it's not nearly as preeminent as it once used to be under the reign of david and solomon hundreds of years ago Um, so israel kind of comes back out of exile with their tail between their leg you know they're kind of humbled and um, they've heard all these promises of a coming messiah and the messiah hasn't come they've got a priesthood who's totally corrupt and self-centered we'll see that later as we go through this book and quite frankly Israel is just, they're kind of fed up with God. They're, they're kind of tired of Him. They're bored with Him. They're spiritually complacent. They're cynical. They're, they're hopeless. They have no enthusiasm or affection or energy for the kingdom of God. It's all dried up because of their hopelessness. And so that's why I've subtitled this sermon series, A Dialogue with God About Spiritual Boredom spiritual complacency and I think that's something we can all identify with at some point don't we all get there maybe some of you are there right now you just you used to be passionate about God but not anymore God's disappointed you so many times your enthusiasm for him is kind of drying up you're bored with reading the Bible you're bored with coming to church you're bored with going to God in prayer and what you need is a prophetic word and that's what Malachi is for you for me, and for the nation of Israel, my fears before Christ. One last question, how? How did Malachi write? How did he um, orchestrate this, this letter? Well it's written in a very interesting style. Um, we just got done with a Q&A sermon series here at uh, New Life, and Malachi is written kind of like a Q&A sermon series. Um, The book is divided into what are called six disputations. And each disputation is just a little Q&A dialogue between God and the people of God. And so uh, on six different sections, what happens is God comes, he makes an accusation through the prophet Malachi, and the people respond with a question, and then God brings an answer and kind of heightens or intensifies the original challenge or or criticism. And so that kind of pattern happens six times throughout the book hence we will have six sermons in the book of malachi dealing with each of these questions so that brings us to our text the first five verses of malachi and the question that is being asked in this very first disputation is this how has god loved us how has god loved us And maybe some of you today are asking that very same question. How has God loved me? How can you tell me that God loves me when this is happening in my life and when that is happening in my life? My life is one trouble after another, my life is one disappointment after another. God has not come through for me, He has not answered my prayers. I don't have the job that I was hoping for, I'm not in the marriage I was hoping for, I'm still single, I don't have as much money as I wanted to have, I'm overlooked, I'm always second, and you're telling me God loves me? That's the question that the people in Malachi's time had and that's the question that a lot of us have today and that's the question that God is gonna answer for us in this passage. So, Malachi one, one through five, let's please stand for the reading of God's word. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated Lord, we are in need of your Holy Spirit as we read these ancient words. God, open our understanding so that we hear your heart expressed through this passage to us, your people. Shape us, mold us, Father, and assure us of your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, you read that passage and just, you know, immediately it just seems like, what, what is he talking about? I mean, there's just so many odd little phrases here jumping from one thing to another. So <laughs> I'm going to try to do the best I can to, to make sense of this. And I, I think we see three kinds of God's love, three aspects of God's love kind of coming through in just these first five verses. And, and the first one is this, God's covenantal love. How has God loved us? Well, he's loved us in a covenantal way. So stick with me here because the word covenant doesn't appear in these first few verses, but I'll explain to you why I think that's what's going on here. If you look at verse 2, here's the first thing we see. God coming to the people and saying, I have loved you. It's the first thing that Malachi says. He doesn't come initially with the ranting and the raving and the threatening and the rebuke. The first thing he says is, I love you. God is taking the initiative to reach out to his people in a loving way. And I assure you, there was very little to love in the people of Israel and God's people at this time. And yet, nonetheless, God comes and says, "I, I have loved you. I love you now, and I have loved you. Past tense, I've loved you in eternity past. I've always loved you. I want you to know that before we go any further, I've loved you. And the kind of love that is being expressed here is a covenantal love. It's the covenantal way of working that allows God to come to a sinful people and say, Before I go any further, let me just say at the outset, I love you. So let's think about this. What, what, what is a covenant? I mean, it's a word that's thrown around a lot in Christian circles. My seminary was called Covenant Seminary. The, Undergrad college of our denomination is Covenant College. We make a big deal in Presbyterian circles about the covenant, but I think very few people know actually what it is. So what is a covenant? First of all, no, it's a repeated theme throughout the Bible, covenant, the word mentioned 286 times in the Old Testament. 286. And the covenant is mentioned more in Malachi than any of the other minor prophets. So it's a theme in Malachi as well. Not necessarily in this passage, but it shows up later. But a simple way to describe the covenant is just to say that it's, it's just the, the form or the way that God has chosen to relate to people. I mean, in the simplest way to say it, that's it. It's we've got a holy, transcendent God. We have a finite, sinful people. There's an enormous bridge between the two. And so the way God has chosen to relate, to reach down, is by way of covenant. It's the way God has chosen to bind himself to people. It's through the covenant. Now, if you want a more complex definition of covenant, we can say, this. this is a definition from Michael Williams, one of my professors at seminary, in his book, Far as the Curse is Found. A covenant is this, a relationship between persons begun by the sovereign determination of the greater party, in this case God, in which the greater, God, commits himself to the lesser, us, in the context of mutual obligations. So, There's a relationship there that's begun, it's initiated by the greater party, and so that's what we're seeing here in verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. God is initiating this relationship. It's his love that starts it. But as he enters into this relationship with the people, there are mutual obligations, there are expectations, there are promised blessings for obedience and promised curses for disobedience in the covenant relationship. So let me give you an example of that as we look at some other different kinds of relationships that um, we experience in this life and how they're not quite covenantal. Um, But but here's another way to actually define the prophet. A prophet is a covenant enforcer. And so that's kind of what Malachi is doing. He's coming into this situation. He's reminding the people of the mutual obligations of the covenant and calling them back to obedience to the covenant. But as a way of just defining this further, um, you know, think of some different kinds of relationships that that we enter into uh, other people. For instance, there there are like legal relationships that we have, right? Contractual relationships that we have in in our lives. We might sign on the dotted line for a a mortgage or we might lease a car and so um, we sign the contract and so there's mutual obligations there with the contract, right? And there are blessings if you stay with the contract. There are curses or penalties if you break the contract. That kind of describes a covenant, but, but not quite. That, that brings in the binding nature of the covenant, but here's what's missing in the legal contract. There's no love. It's not a personal relationship. When you sign on the dotted line to buy a house, you're not pledging to love your banker. You're not expecting that your banker is going to love you. You you don't expect flowers, a bouquet of flowers from your banker. It's not that kind of relationship. It's a relationship. It's a binding relationship, but it's an impersonal, cold, kind of detached relationship. Most of you don't even probably know your banker's name so when we look at covenant, there's the binding nature of a legal contract that is certainly part of it, and we wanna hang on to that, but we don't wanna limit the covenant relationship to just a mere legal contract. So here's another kind of relationship that we get into. We get into loving relationships, romantic relationships. And if we just say, you know, just think of this before marriage, you have a boy and a girl get together, they start falling in love and spending a lot of time together. And there's something really warm and and encouraging and just sweet about a loving relationship. And so the love is there, the the personal connection is there, but, but what's missing, before marriage anyway, what's missing in that relationship? That is, there's nothing really that binding about it. See, so that's one of the reasons I would say cohabitation, living together before your marriage, is just, it's not a good idea. You're getting the the love, but you're not getting the mutual obligation, there's nothing binding there. So the love relationship has the personal connection, but it's missing a mechanism to hold it together. And as a result of that, it's, it's easily ended. And it's very easy to walk away with no penalties and no responsibility. But see, a covenant relationship is legal and loving at the same time. It's got both of these elements. It's personal. It comes from the love of God. I have loved you, verse 2. But there's mutual obligations and expectations. So it's binding at the same time. And that's what sets this relationship apart from all other kinds of relationships that we might uh, get into. I, I think a marriage could be called a covenant for the very same reasons that I'm stating here. But let me give you an example here from Psalm 106 about how a covenant works in the Bible. Uh, here the psalmist is referring to Israel. They were rebellious in their purposes. They were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, God looked upon their distress. When he heard their cry, for their sake, he says remembered there on the dotted line. It says he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. The people were rebellious. They were disobedient, they were displeasing to him, God was angry, and then he remembers, I made a commitment. I am mutually, I am am obligated, I am bound by my covenant promise to stick with this stiff-necked people. So the covenant is huge. The covenant is wonderful. The covenant is a great display of the love of God. And now we can even elevate it a step further because here's what happens. As the Old Testament goes on and as it becomes increasingly apparent apparent that the people of God are absolutely clueless about how to keep the covenant, (laughs) disobeying it over and over again even after all these prophets over hundreds of years are sent and they just prove themselves unable to hold up their end of the bargain, so what does God do? He says, here is how I'm going to resolve this problem. I am going to fulfill the covenant obligations for you. I'm going to come into this world in the person of Jesus Christ, and I'm gonna obey the law of God, fulfilling the requirements of the covenant, and then I'm gonna to go to the cross, taking upon myself the curses of the covenant. And as I'm risen from the dead, then those who trust in this risen Jesus can be freed from the curses of the covenant and filled with the Holy Spirit and enabled then throughout the course of our lives to increasingly improve in our obedience to these covenant obligations. But we're free from covenant curses, friends, because of what Jesus has done for us in the new covenant. So a very unique kind of love here, a covenantal love. If you're wondering, has God loved you? Yes, he has, and he's loved you in a unique way. He's loved you in a covenantal way. Okay, well the passage goes on and we find another aspect of God's love, his electing love. His electing love. So, when God says I have loved you in verse 2, the people respond, how have you loved us? And by the way, you should probably read that or hear a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of cynicism in that yeah how have you loved us that's kind of the tone that you ought to hear yeah right you always say that God but tell me how how have you loved us and then you know God gives through Malachi this kind of odd answer I mean what a way to respond right he says is not Esau Jacob's brother like what what does that have to do with God's love is not Esau, Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. So what is God saying here? Well, Jacob and Esau, that takes us back to the book of Genesis, right? You remember Jacob and Esau born to Isaac and Rebekah? But you might remember that Esau was the firstborn. Esau born first, then Jacob. Not that big of a deal in our culture when you have brothers and sisters who was born first doesn't make a big deal, but in this culture it made a really big deal because there was a special priority and favor given to the firstborn child. So you would expect, if you get into this ancient culture, that God would love Esau and not Jacob. So that's why this is a significant statement. God says, is not Esau Jacob's brother yet Even though I should have loved Esau first or more, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And so what God is saying here is I I do things in a way that is totally unpredictable. What God is saying is I do things my way. Uh, I'm a sovereign God and I love who I want to love. And I choose who I want to choose. And in this case, I've chosen Jacob and I've not chosen Esau. I wouldn't get too hung up on the love-hate language there. Don't think of hate there as the same kind of you know, self-centered rage that human beings have when they're filled with hate. We're talking about a holy God here. I think the idea is not so much to read that so literally as to hear what God is saying about his choice, his unpredictable choice. He has set his covenantal loving heart on Jacob, but not on Esau. And so the whole idea here is that God's love is always going out toward the undeserving and God's love is always extended to people who don't deserve it, to people who have no claim upon it. And that's exactly how God loved Israel. Here's Deuteronomy chapter 7, God speaking to Israel, it was not because Israel you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. It wasn't because you were a great, mighty nation. It wasn't because I was so pleased with you. You were the fewest of all peoples. There was no reason for me to necessarily have any favor on you, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath, the covenant, that he swore to your fathers when he made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm keeping my oath, and I'm loving you because I'm loving you that's that's why God loves he loves us because he loves us we can't say he loves us because we're so good he loves us because we're so religious he loves us because we're so moral we're so upright we're so pure in our motives now we can't say that if you believe in an electing love God loves us because he loves us now we get more of this later in the New Testament. If you turn to Romans 9, i got the passage here for you, and Paul actually refers to this passage in Romans 9 and ties this more directly to the doctrine of election. When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather, forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, Isaac and Jacob, they'd done nothing, good or bad, nothing that would cause God to want to love one, and not the other nothing like that had happened yet but in order that god's purpose of election might continue election his sovereign choice not because of works but because of him who calls it's not because of something in you or me it's because of god's sovereign grace she was told the older will serve the younger that is, the older Esau will serve the younger Jacob. Completely different than what you'd expect. Because as it is written, and here it is, here's our text. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. <clears throat> now we went through the book of Romans about, I don't know, a year ago. I don't remember when I was in Romans 9. But I'm not going to get into great detail here. We, we unpack this in some detail then. You can go to the website, find that sermon, and listen to it. But <clears throat> what's being taught here is... That God's electing love, God's choice of who belongs to Him does not depend on anything that He foresees in us. He doesn't look down and think, oh, this guy's going to do this good thing, so I'll choose him. And and I know this person over here is going to believe in me, so I'll choose her. That's not why God makes any choice. God's choice of us is independent of anything in us, which is just another way of saying it's (coughs) entirely... It's entirely wrapped up in his love and in his grace. It's the only way to guard the purity of grace to hang on to this doctrine. Because if you're gonna hang on to anything in yourself as a reason why God chose you, then there's something in you and not in God that is meriting his attention to you. And that's not grace, that's earning God's love. The, the wonderful result of this is it just eliminates any self-righteous or any pride that we might have in being Christians we, we just cannot say I'm a Christian because I did this and because I did that and because I was going to do this and because I didn't do that no the reason you're a Christian is because God in his grace and in his eternal sovereign love chose you from before the foundation of the world it's the, ol- the only ultimate reason why that has happened <clears throat> so here's the way this should be an encouragement to you. If God's love, if God's love didn't have a starting point, that is, if if, if he's been loving you for all eternity, that means God's love will not have an ending point. It'll never run out. If, If there's nothing in you that started God to love you, that means there's nothing in you that will end God's love for you. That this is a love independent of our performance. I mean, isn't that great? Don't you get tired of trying? Maybe that's one of the things that makes us bored with God and makes us complacent, is we're so sick and tired of trying so hard to get God to love us. And we just feel like we're never doing enough, never reading our Bible enough, never praying enough, never witnessing enough, never giving enough money, never going to church enough, never serving enough. And we think, how can God love me? I don't do enough. Well, God's love is not dependent on what you do. Isn't that good? It started in eternity past. God's love for you has as much to do with you as you have had to do with the color of your hair or the parents that were given to you or the city that you were born in. Those were decisions made for you, not because of you. This was just so, for me, This was huge. When I opened up a book called The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination 20 years ago and started reading it, I mean, my eyes were opened and that book was used by God to pull me out of a spiritual lethargy and boredom. I mean, I was just so excited about worshiping this God who is this sovereign and this big and this gracious and this loving I know that's not everybody's response to this doctrine. I understand that. But it was my response for whatever reason. I mean, I remember thinking, why has no one told me about this? I've been a Christian since I was 16 years old. I've been in church almost every Sunday. I've never heard about the doctrine of election. That's why I'm telling you this now. That's why I don't hesitate to tell you this now. That's why I don't apologize for this, (laughs) even though you might not agree with every aspect of it. It's a sweet, good doctrine. It's ironic, isn't it, that so many people hear the doctrine of election and they question God's love where what Malachi is doing is using the doctrine of election to assure God's people of his love. That's the purpose of it, to assure you of his love. So God's covenantal love, God's electing love. One more thing that we see here in the following passages, or following verses. (coughs) God's preserving love, God's preserving love. Here's another aspect of the love of God, verses four and five, actually at the end of verse three. <clears throat> end of verse three. Um, <clears throat> I have laid waste his hill country, God says, referring to Esau, and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. So God is talking about judgment on the descendants or the heritage of Esau. And then verse four says, if Edom says, so you might think, why does he jump now to Edom? What does Edom have to do with this? Well, Edom are the descendants of Esau. So Esau and Edom are kind of of the same. Edom is the heritage of Esau. What God says here is, if Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build but I will tear down. I will call them a wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. So, so here's what is being talked about here. Um, when you think of the doctrine of election, one of the problems we get is we think, okay, God chooses some and he doesn't choose others, so that's an injustice to the ones he didn't choose, as if the ones he didn't choose were somehow innocent and deserving of being chosen. So that's what causes our sense of injustice to go up. Wait a minute, God didn't choose some people? That's an an injustice to them. Well, no, it's not because they're not innocent and deserving of the choice. And that's the case here. God is saying, I didn't choose Esau and I didn't choose Edom. And the reason why is because Edom did some pretty horrible things. The whole book of Obadiah, it's another minor prophet, talks about Edom and its pride. Edom was just all puffed up in itself had a pride problem. And in Numbers chapter 20, we read of how the Israelites, when they were leaving Egypt, they went to Edom and they said, hey, can you give us passageway through your land so that we can get away from these Egyptians? And Edom said, no, (laughs) shut the doors down to God's people. That was an unwise decision on Edom's behalf. And so because of their pride and their immorality, here's what God is saying, I'm gonna lay them waste I'm going to judge them. In fact, God did exactly that. And about the time of the writing of Malachi, um, some Arabs came in and displaced Edom from their homeland and dispersed them and judged them. And what do we know about Edom today? Virtually nothing. Edom is just a forgotten nation, a forgotten empire. And so what God is saying here through Malachi in these verses is this. He's saying, look, Edom has been judged, and they might say that they're going to rebuild themselves, but God says, but I'm not going to let it happen. They might try to rebuild, but I'm going to tear them down, and I'm going to keep them down. They don't have a future, and history has proven that. Here we are 2,500 years later, and we don't know anything about Edom. But we know a lot about the nation of Israel, don't we? And we know a lot about the children of Abraham church of Jesus Christ. There's an empire, so to speak, that has lasted because God has preserved his people over the course of history. He didn't preserve Edom, but he has preserved the church. That's the point. That's what he's saying. How have you loved us? What God is saying is, here's how I've loved you. I have committed to making sure that no one annihilates you, that no one eliminates you, that you thrive over the course of all history, that you will be the one institution that will outlast all the others. That's how much I've loved you. Jim Spiegel gave me a, <clears throat> sent a, a book to me a little while ago called The Fate of Empires. And uh, a guy named John Glubb wrote this, and he, he listed all of these different empires throughout history and showed how all of them have failed. And in fact, it's kind of curious to see how they all lasted just a similar number of years. So he talks about the Assyrian Empire, they lasted 247 years. The Persian Empire, 208 years. The Roman Empire, 207 years. Ottoman Empire, 250 years. The British Empire, 250 years. You can imagine, you know, 75, 100, 125 years into those empires, all those people are thinking, we're the strongest, most powerful people in the world. Who's ever going to overcome us? Who's ever going to topple us? Just imagine the pride and the self-sufficiency that they must have felt in those empires. They all ended. Every one of them. You know what, the USA is about 241 years old. think the United States is going to last forever? I'm not saying we're, we're done in nine years. I'm not saying that. But if the pattern bears out, I mean, who knows? I mean, where is your pride in terms of, of, of the, the institution that you belong to? What are you hoping? in? That you're an American? Is that your first allegiance? I'm an American. The United States is going to perish one day. But the Church of Jesus Christ Will never perish. Look what Jesus says On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That there is no greater group, community, institution, nation, whatever you want to call us, there's no better group to belong to than the church of Jesus Christ. And all of your service to the church, all the work you do for the church, no matter whether it's noticed or not, no matter how background it is, no matter how much money you've given, no matter how many times you've come, no matter how bored and how just repetitious it all seems to be, I just want to assure you it's, it's all going to be worth it because it's in service to the one institution that will never die because God preserves his people. So a lot in this passage here about how God has loved us. He has committed to us covenantally. He has elected us before the foundation of the world. And he has committed to preserve us forever. So friends, you might be thinking, you know, you might be feeling like your parents aren't loving you very well. Or your kids aren't loving you very well. Or your spouse isn't loving you very well. Your friends aren't loving you very well. Maybe you've never really felt loved by anybody. But let me assure you who trust in Jesus, God loves you in a deep, powerful, profound, and eternal way. Don't ever doubt the love of God for His people. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful to you that you have.